This is Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. I'm Jesse Felder. Object to the test! As always, this episode is brought to you by the Felder Report. Each week I go through a ton of reading and research. I put together the five things that I found most valuable during the week into a Saturday morning email. If that's something you'd be interested in receiving, just go to thefelderreport.com right there on the homepage, click join now, and you'll be good to go. My guest for this episode is Bill Fleckenstein. It's uh, hard to believe that it's been almost three years since I started this podcast and made the trek up to Seattle to interview Bill as one of my first guests on the topics of central bankers, financial bubbles, and white burgundy. Um, And if you haven't listened to that one, I encourage you to do so because we go through Bill's extensive background and experience in short selling and his successes um, over the past 30 years of his career. Um, But I I thought with the global pandemic that's now threatening to burst um, the asset bubbles the Fed has blown over the past several years and uh, now forcing central bankers into even more extreme monetary policies, this would be an opportune time to reconnect with Bill, get his thoughts on how these things are evolving and how investors might seek to profit in their midst. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Bill Fleckenstein. I wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500. Because they're sheep. And sheep get slaughtered. Hey, Bill, welcome back to the show. Hi, Jesse. It's nice to be back. Yeah, I can't believe it was uh, almost three years ago uh, that uh, we did this for the first time. Um, I got to thank you. My uh, my wife is now a huge White Burgundy fan, <laughs> and, and uh, uh, finally started uh, you know getting some decent wines for her. But now now she won't drink anything but White Burgundy. So <laughs> thank you. So I cost you some money, obviously. <laughs> yes, yeah, but it's a good thing. It's a good thing to have some decent wine around the house. I. Speaking of that, uh, I've got myself here a glass of uh, Willamette Pinot Noir that I'm drinking. Do you have something uh, on your end over there? Uh, I, I, I'm actually I'm actually having a beer. <laughs> it's pretty, it's Perfect. Pretty warm out. I, I, oftentimes, I'll, uh, a beer tastes good. I'll, I'll switch to wine. Uh, I never drink more than one beer. After that, they don't taste very good. Half the time, I don't even finish the first one. Yeah, I'm not much of a beer guy. I, you know, living in Bend, you think I would be? I think we have more breweries uh, per capita than anywhere else on the planet. But uh, yeah, I can have like one beer, and, and that's about it. But uh, anyhow, I just figured since last time we did this in person and we had had wine, why don't why not try and recreate that even if we can't be in person? So, um, I was thinking about preparing for this um, this conversation. And there's a quote from a Stan Druckenmiller interview that just has been stuck in my head. He, uh, it's from that uh, Lost Tree speech he gave, I don't know, five years ago or something, um, where he says 80% of the big, big money we made was in bear markets and in equities because crazy things were going on in response to what I would call central bank mistakes during that 30-year period. And that's that's a real loaded um, you know, quote, but... Yeah, I, I think it pretty well describes your career as a short seller, no? Well, yeah, except for um, Stan's so much smarter than me, of course. And what what he, which I've, I've actually been at a dinner with him a, a couple of times um, with some other guys. and uh, the, But he made money not so much shorting, although I, they did make money being short, was they were, he would just load up on bonds, right? 
So it was, and, and for all I know, there was FX trades that came out of that. So it was, it was more the, the um, ability to leverage up bonds and maybe FX to make money in, in the bear markets as opposed to being short. I mean, obviously, a lot of stocks have declined rather dramatically, but it is really difficult to make money being short when you're having to fight these massive liquidity injections. You know, I mean, I'm really not even trying very hard at all because, um, you know, they're rolling out these new facilities and, and $2 trillion. I mean, first of all, look what QE did. It took the market to the moon for a long time. They, they tried to back off. The market started to, to, to wobble. They came back with more Then they came with the, the, the um, repo facility in the fall. And now they've started all this stuff. So it's just, there's no roadmap when they're doing all of this, uh, mon- sorry, uh, all of this monetization. And of course they're going to be bringing more fiscal stimulus and, and, and the fed has, trained people to believe that nothing bad can ever happen when they do all this monetization and and they don't think about the fact that what they've done is they've they've sort of talked without talking every the you know cities states entities into just kicking the can on on all problems right and so there's this huge brewing uh, pension problem. There are all sorts of of um, warped bits of thinking about what's possible. So, for instance, you know they're starting to buy munis. Well, what's to stop the states from saying, "Hey, f- hey, Fed, just monetize this directly"? They, they, they've led people to believe that the printing press can solve all the problems and there's no downside. So nobody tries to solve problems. They wait for, for the consequences of the money printing to, to have a, to, to cause trouble. And then they turn around and do it again. Um, so now obviously this crisis was brought on by the pandemic, but the epic bubble that we've been living through is the reason why it's such chaos and it's going to be, going to be more so. So, uh, long answer. Um, I think shorting is extremely difficult given the MO of the central banks. Yeah. And, and let's, you, you tweeted a great article. I think it was last week or earlier this week, um, about these kind of central bank mistakes. I think it was, uh, the opening lines were something to the tune of, um, you know, the, the, the coronavirus didn't create this crisis, it's just the catalyst right. for a crisis that's right. created by the Fed. So let, let's talk about the the crisis that we're facing now. Obviously, is not just a health crisis; it's a it's a another financial crisis. But you know, what were the mistakes that the Fed made over the last ten years to that put us in this position? Well, um, you know, it, it, it's been it's it, it's been a, a a slowly evolving bigger and bigger issue. I mean, right. We, the, after the, the Greenspan's mistakes in the late nineties, which I think I captured in my book. And then we had the early part of the, the, the 2000 to 2010 period, the, the, the fed didn't get blamed for the bubble, sorry, for the economic damage that was caused by the burst bubble because they pinned it all on nine 11. 
So then they were, you know, they cut rates and they did all that. And then we started, then we, they created a housing bubble and they cheerleaded for that. And I actually covered that in the book. Um, but then after that burst and nearly took down the financial system, they, 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 they started doing QE and they said they could stop and all that. And of course they couldn't remember when they tried to stop, um, the market started to wobble and they had to back off. I mean, they did get away with it for about a year, but basically, you, you know, I think it was Kyle Bass who first noted that you can't leave NERP and ZERP and I don't, and you can't, you can't leave QE. I mean, or get very far trying. So, you know, the, the, so the, 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 the Fed just created this false sense of everything's okay. They, they forced rates to be at zero. And when I say the Fed, the other central banks did the same thing. They forced rates to be at zero. And they, they got people complacent. We, and so we had the problem with the ETFs being bigger than the underlying securities and vol selling and all these. We had all this crazy stuff that mimicked portfolio insurance. And then instead of the bubble exhausting itself and, and, and taking itself down, which is what usually happens, and then spilling out into the economy and having all those things, the bubble was burst by basically a nuclear weapon in the form of this pandemic that basically stopped GDP around the world. So, we, you know, it was wasn't just like, a uh, the, you know, the bubble just got 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 kind of got pricked. I mean, it got obliterated and so did the economy. So you've got this really wild cross currents between the pandemic and the panic over that, which I think we've passed the peak panic. You know, now we're going to struggle with how do we reopen the economy and then the and the bounce back of the pandemic and all that sort of thing. So there's that on there's there's that. But uh, um, and then there's the economic damage. And I don't think people have really gotten their heads around how extraordinary the economic damage is and is going to be. Well, yeah. And, and you know, it's I guess it's a testament. You you mentioned the the dramatic uh, you know steps the Fed is going to or has gone in the last couple of weeks and I think you recently wrote that it's far beyond anything you imagined and especially how quickly they've unrolled it all um, you know you've been writing for a few years that yeah you know when when we get another bear market the Fed is going to pull out all the stops they're going to start doing X Y and Z but the fact that they have to start buying corporate bonds and things right now is due to the fact that they encouraged so much debt creation over the prior 10 years, uh, right? I mean, absolutely. You said that perfectly, Jesse, that, I mean, so, you know, it's, it's just so bizarre that, I mean, you know, my friend Jim Grant came up with this brilliant analogy, which I, I steal all the time, you know, that the fed, they are the arsonists, and they always get credit for being the firemen <laughs> and and they're the ones that create the mess in the first place, but they get, they never get tagged with that. And I mean, at some point that will change. I can't say exactly when I have a hard time believing we're going to get through the next year or year and a half without people seeing what a, what a reckless mess they are. But, but, but I mean, you know, they, you have to, we have to understand there's like two generations of investors that don't know anything, but this crazy, these crazy policies they, that they pursue, they've never taken any pain. There was a, okay, let's call it, let's say you started the investment business in 01. We've been at it for 20 years. 
almost. That's a decent amount of time. You've had, you had about a year of pain in 08. And if you were, if you've been it for almost 30 years, you had a year in a year or two in 01, uh, 00 to 01 and then, and then 08. So you haven't ever seen any real pain and you, and you, you've been able to draw conclusions about how markets work, which really aren't true. They've only been true in this activist central bank era that we have just come through and are still in. And while 20 or 30 years is a long, a long amount of time for in a person's lifetime, it's not really in history or economic history. So when they look back and they'll write the history book, they'll say, God, there was this period that went on almost 25 or 30 years where they thought that they could print money and it wouldn't matter and all this stuff. And then, then of course it will have blown up and they'll, they'll write a different outcome and they'll learn a different, they'll, they'll learn, they'll relearn the lesson. You can't do these things, but while you're going through it, these people think it's painless. So if you were the average portfolio manager or investor and you know you'd read somebody like me or somebody else who is critical of the fed and they'd say yeah but look it works there's no it's just it works they, they don't see it's sort of like um you know people thought oxy worked just fine until they found out that it was wildly addicting and it ruined lives right i mean that's a little severe but the point being, while you're going through it, when bad policies, a lot of time, the the lead time between when you're pursuing the bad policy and when you have to pay for it can be 5, 10, 15 years. And so people have a hard time connecting the bat, the 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 uh, policy that created the bubble with, with the burst that comes later, I guess. That's the best I can come up with. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's it's a great point that you know so many investors have not seen anything but you know Fed blown bubbles. Um, I think I you know what is it, the Nasdaq had one down year since two thousand two. I think that's right. Oh, I think that, I, I think you know two, what? If I drew the, ch- I, 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 I'd be surprised. I think it's one down right. year. I'd be surprised if that's yeah. not right. Yeah, and so you know people have you know we got sixteen up years and one down year. Um, during their, you know, 17-year career, um, yeah, you, you, the only lesson you can draw from that is, yeah, the Fed is going to is going to prop this thing up, and they can do it indefinitely. Um, and you hear that, right? right? You hear that narrative from investors all the time. Market can't, markets can't go down uh, as long as the Fed's doing right. what they're doing. Right. But uh, you know, to me, it, it really comes back to you know. Congress gave them this this dual mandate, right? Uh, whatever it is, moderate inflation, or, or you know, uh, prevent inflation from getting out of control, but also full employment. And so the Fed has taken it upon themselves to say we're supposed to prevent recessions. We're supposed to not allow recessions to happen. And it comes back to this firefighter analogy, right? Imagine. I think we learned through fires uh, you know, in the United States that trying to prevent all forest fires is a really bad idea, right? right. And, and that's the, right. that's what the Fed is doing, right? I mean, right. It, I, it, well, you know, and by trying to prevent all these recessions, uh, you know, or every time a recession hits, trying to immediately create a recovery instead of allowing any type okay, of washout. Let's yeah, go ahead. Let's expand on that, okay? So the people that have been trained by the actions of the economy and things that the Fed's done for the last 20 years arrived at the moment the pandemic hit with no savings. Um, we've all seen the, the the data, although probably nobody knows where it came from, that said the average person has $400 in savings. It doesn't really matter what the number is, but the fact of the matter is 
generically people have sort of lived hand to mouth and they haven't felt the need. There's been no, no, no reason they haven't really thought through, well, why would I need to have savings? Everything's going to be fine or, or whatever. They've been trained in a manner that, that, that goes against actual reality. You know, historically there have been, there, there were, we'd have recessions every four to five, six years for a variety of different reasons. But usually what it boils down to is people get a little careless. They get a little sloppy. They make mistakes. Something comes along. They have to retrench, but they learned along the way that I got to keep a cushion I got to be prepared for something bad to happen. And of course, guys that are your, your age and my age, our parents or our grandparents who were younger could t- tell us about what the depression was like when people really, you know, struggled. There was uh, obviously it was a horrible period economically, but but the lessons that, that people took away of of uh, you know having savings and and just be prepared for something bad to happen, people have lost. The, 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 not necessarily the knowledge, but they haven't felt that there's been any need to prepare or, or, you know, just in case. Right. And, uh, um, so I think the, the consequence of going 20 years with, with one down year, basically, or 18 years with one down year has, has taught people not to be prepared, not to save, not to not to really save. Um, um, they taught them, you know, and speculation is fine. A lot of people have th- thought they were saving and they were actually speculating. So these are all sort of the some of the subtle and pernicious consequences of the policies that the Fed and the other central banks have pursued, where they've tried to ha- ensure permanent prosperity, and then and then you get these. So all this crazy behavior, and then when it gets rocked by something like this, no one's prepared, and the economic damage is just going to be so bad, so brutal for so many poor people. I feel so bad for so many of these people who, you know, you, you can't expect everybody to be sophisticated, but you can, you know, I think that they expect that the people running running the show, so to speak aren't completely incompetent and you know what they're wrong they are you're, yeah and you're, that's a great point you know that we've had moral hazard you know with uh you know investors and with companies that have thought i don't need to you know to prepare my business or my portfolio for a rainy day because the fed and the whatever will come right to the rescue but you could even maybe say that for individuals too they've said you know if something happens the government and whatever they're they're going to come to the rescue too, and so I don't need to 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 think of in terms of cycles anymore. That's that's one of the consequences of all this. Um, yeah, I, I don't it, I don't know that people actually necessarily thought that through. It just kind of it just kind of what they what evolved. Do you know what I mean? Because if you would have really thought, gee, do I need to keep some savings? What if something? If you actually thought about that, you probably would. But I just think it's like the farthest things from anyone's mind. I mean, nothing bad ever happens. Why, I mean, why do we have to worry about it? You know what I'm saying? It's just like, well, yeah, yeah. How many, how many, how many times did we hear over the last couple of years? Right, we had just had the longest economic expansion in however long, and that encourages people to think, well, you know, maybe this could go on forever. You have Janet Yellen saying we've we've seen the the you know probably the last financial crisis in our lifetimes in 2009. You have all this kind of rhetoric of, you know, maybe the Fed has ended recessions. Maybe they've actually lived, you know, found a way to live up to their yeah. mandate. It, yeah. It's it's amazing. 
Yeah. So, so, so what used to happen when, when, you know, we'd have these quaintly called the economic cycle and we'd have recessions and, and, uh, recoveries or booms and busts, but through those things, people, people learn, you know, they learn to be careful, learn to do things differently, keep a cash cushion, have a decent balance sheet, not to speculate too much or whatever. And, 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 and you had to, you know, you had to learn and you had to be smart to navigate your way through these different business cycles. And now it's just been, you know, a, a, an exercise in uh, getting on some speculative security and hanging on for dear life. Right. Which that, that worked. It's not exactly a thoughtful strategy. Uh, and 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 even right now, still, because of all the money they're printing, those 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 fang stocks, arguably, uh, are, uh, you know, are extremely expensive, but you know, there's, I mean, I'm not saying that, I mean, Amazon does seem pretty well situated, but I don't know if it's worth what it's worth. I, I, I don't have a, I'm not trying to advocate for that, but the, the fact that there's been sort of this, um, mindless adherence to anything that goes up, well, well, you know, valuations don't mean anything. And, uh, and, and, and so that also has led people to be kind of careless about how they, they look at their, their finances overall, I think. Yeah. And that's a consequence of the, you know, uh, the fed, I guess, encouraging, uh, an, an economic expansion. We, I mean, we probably should have had a recession in 2015, 16. Some people argue that we did, uh, you know, and, and the fed road to the rescue, then global central banks to kind of prevent any type of even a mild downturn at that time. What is there a consequence, uh, you know, to come back to the firefighting analogy, when you prevent forest fires for a period of time, right, and allow all this um, detritus and undergrowth and all this stuff to kind of build up, you create the risk of a much bigger, more damaging fire when it eventually comes. Do you think that's where we are now because of these uh, po- you know, policies the Fed's pursued for the past decade plus? Oh, uh, without question. Uh, this, I mean, you know, there's just n- no, n- no end n- in the aggregate. I mean, essentially, no one's pre- no one's prepared. The cities aren't prepared. The states aren't prepared. You know, I mean, there's just no there, the concept of fiscal responsibility is the farthest thing from anyone's mind anywhere, except for, you know, you know, some people with gray hair that have, you know, been through enough stuff and have read enough about financial history. Um, so the, the, the Fed has basically penalized you so aggressively for being prudent that they stomped it out of, out of people's behavior. You got re, you've been rewarded for being speculative and you've been penalized for being uh, prudent or frugal. So anyway, they created the landscape such that when this virus hit, and and basically, you know, created created an an instantaneous depression. Basically, you, you, people came into it as unprepared as they possibly could be. So now the question becomes: Okay, what's going to happen prospectively? Because that what how soon we open up and how fast we open up that's in the hands of the politicians and. I'm not going to pick on anyone specifically, but generally they're incompetent. I don't care whether Democrats, Republicans, where they are. No, not all. There's now and again you see, you know, the occasional 
politicians actually smart and can make decisions. But my big fear is because I my biggest worry, forget being a bear or a bull on this or that. My biggest worry is the economic devastation that's going to happen to so many people because of the the depression that's been caused by stopping the economy to deal with the virus. And I don't think that I think that the average politician is more concerned about the the incremental coronavirus death than they are with the the bankrupting of 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 um, um, uh, many 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 more companies. I mean, sorry, families through bad economic uh, uh, because of the 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 horrendous economy, right? So. That's my my biggest fear right now. I mean, when I think about what's going on is how are they going to how are we going to deal with the whole reopening and are people going to make intelligent decisions? When I look around, I'm afraid they're going to make a bunch of political um, expedient decisions for themselves. You're the governor of a state. Uh, you're worried about getting criticized when you reopen, when there's going to be more deaths, because there will be. But it, I don't think you get I don't think you feel like you get criticized if, um, you know, five million households in your state basically go bankrupt. You know, then you get to you get to blame that on the virus or Trump or the bubble. And so I think that's the, the biggest danger is going to be economic mismanagement on the part of politicians going forward. And then you combine that with the insanity that the feds created. And it's a real problematic mix. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to ask you is, you know, we, we, we were talking about the central bank mistakes leading up to today. I was going to ask, what are the central bank mistakes they're making now? But it's a good point that it's it's not just central bank, it's the fiscal mistakes, too, that are potentially being made. And, you know, that brings up the whole MMT, you know, thing that, that we're witnessing right now. Um, yeah, I, I guess there is the risk of, you know, politicians making these mistakes based on, you know, wanting to get reelected versus what's the right thing for people and the economy. Um, but it seems like the, the Fed is kind of stuck just aiding and abetting these policies, no matter what they are, uh, which is maybe the mistake the Fed's making now, too, is that they've become beholden to fiscal. What, what do you see as the as the mistake, well, I guess, pre- the, pretend you're, the monetary mistake? Pretend you're a politician. You've been, I mean, there, there's been no consequence to running up big deficits, there doesn't seem to have been any consequence to printing money because they don't they don't see the the concept the economic damage from the bubble. You know, they just blame it all on the pandemic. So they've all been trained that nothing really matters from a uh, fiscal or monetary standpoint. So they're all going to push for the government to do more, more, and more. I mean, like they, they mean they, you know that they, they spend trillions at the drop of a hat. Everybody's for it because why not? It doesn't have it doesn't have any consequences, so they think. Now, uh, we haven't gotten to the part where the bond market doesn't work anymore because of what they've done, but and that's for down the road. But um, the so the, it, 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 again, it's part of the danger of the Fed enabled that everyone's to, sorry, you know, the can to be kicked on lots and lots of different issues. And now when the economy stops and, and, and basically, you know, entities all go broke, then they look to the fed to do more. And of course the fed try does more and eventually they'll, they'll do way too much. Um, but again, I mean, 
the Fed created the financial, the land, the, the, sorry, the, the, the problems in the financial landscape, but, and those are bad, but again, the, 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 the real danger to them is what happens next on the economy. And we just have to see because they're, look, they're gonna, I mean, some places they'll, they'll, they'll be very slow to open up and they're going to do tremendous damage and, and other places they'll open up sooner and there'll be rebounds in the virus and people will freak out and we'll have to see what happens. I mean, uh, I mean, this is going to, it's going to be so much trickier, I think, than certainly than what the stock market's discounting. But again, you don't know what the stock market's discounting because the Fed pumped in $2 trillion, you know, in, you know, less than five weeks. Yeah, well, and, and that's a great point. Let, let me ask you this. The Fed, you know, went, you know, uh, far bigger than anything anybody imagined. They, they I think they you could argue they learned their lesson from the financial crisis rather than kind of, you know, saying, Hey, is this big enough markets? Is this big enough economy? And then they having to get bigger and bigger to finally find the, the level that was enough to kind of put a floor in for, for stocks, which, you know, is also arguably whether the, the fed had a role in that or just accounting change, but they, they decided this time we just have to go huge, uh, right out, right out the gate. Um, you you suggest, and I think it's absolutely reasonable to expect this. This the economic malaise is going to be not just deeper, but so much longer. We're not going to just reopen and go back to where we were in February. We're going to reopen a piecemeal, and there's still going to be social distancing measures, and the virus might make a comeback. And no, it's no, going to potentially take a long time. Guaranteed, the virus yeah. may come back. The question is yeah. how manageable it turns out to be. But it, yes, for sure, it's coming. It's going to come back. Yeah, and so my point, my I guess my question is, the Fed has already gone so much bigger than anybody thought they would go. I mean, what if they have to go that much bigger and for that much longer over the next year, eighteen months, two years? You know, it, it could get so big that it's you know it's already beyond imagination, but it could get so much bigger even. Well, and and they look my long held theory, and we probably talked about this three years ago has been had been. I knew that when this bubble burst, they'd come back and do what they've done. I, I obviously didn't know it was going to be a pandemic, and I didn't know that they'd get away with it as long as they did, but that's how it's worked out. They're going to continue to do this until the bond markets stop allowing them to do it. In the old days, the currency markets would have stopped them. But when all G7 countries are doing the same thing, they're just, they're just various flavors of the same bad paper right there's no real difference between any of these currencies because they're all doing the same crap so at some point it's going to be up to the bond market to say i don't know if i really want to own these now you know if you're if you're a pension plan or an insurance company how are you supposed to diffuse these long long tailed liabilities with a 10-year bond that yields 60 or 80 beeps there's nothing there. Now, for a while, it kind of worked because guys, you know, were hopeful they go to rates could go to zero or negative, which is insane. But I just think at some point it's going to change. And I thought it was interesting that Jeff uh, Gundelach, uh, he had some webcast recently where he said, you know, there's just there's there's no value in bonds anymore. And there aren't. They've been they've been uh, reward free risk for quite some time. But it 
I don't know what what's going to happen, but somewhere along the way, there's going to become a, 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 a moment in time where psychology is going to change. And maybe it's when we're issuing, you know, when the deficit gets to three or four trillion and 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 it, all of a sudden, you know, in, inflation is picked up because that's liable to be on the other side of this um, depression, the bottlenecks that we hit and people have been sensitized to not being able to get holds of things. Psychology's changed. I mean, who would have thought people would hoard toilet paper, for instance, but that's, that's a mindset of, well, maybe I better have some just in case. And when you start to get people to think like that and they start looking at these policies and we get on the other side of the opening and start to see the bottlenecks and things, and, and, and people start to say, well, I mean, the Fed is telling you that 2% inflation is not enough. Okay, now, I know no one's worried about inflation right now when oil is trading at zero, literally, uh, at least in the front month. But um, there's going to be more inflation. The Fed has decided that when, when inflation gets to two, whenever that happens, they're going to say, it's okay, we don't have to worry about it because we need to make up for past. So at some point, the bond market is going to say, we're not doing this anymore. You're going to offer me, you know, some handful of basis points for 10, 15, 20 years. And you're going to, you're going to make inflation too, at least. And you're going to let it, and when it's running high, it was running higher than that anyway. So somehow they're going to lose the bond market and that will stop this lunacy. And then that's going to be a real train wreck. Of course, I don't, I don't know when that's going to happen or how it's going to come, come about. And then you also have to think about the, the, the debt jubilee idea. I mean, Japan could pull that off now. Japan could just, the BOJ could say to the MOF, hey, let's tear up that paper. Let's, you, you know, uh, the, the MOF could say, we'll, we'll give you, uh, yeah, because they own 44% of the, or some number like that of the, the, the Japanese uh, bond market. They could just say, um, well, we'll trade you in a 200-year piece of paper at one basis point, and you, you know, basically they get rid of the debt. So there's a possibility that somebody may try debt jubilees, and that could be the thing that changes psychology. All I know is this. When you're printing trillions and, you're, and you want 2% inflation, but you'll take higher because you think you haven't had enough, which they've all said, you know, we've, we've been behind. Look, um, at some point, rates are like sub one. At some point, bond markets are going to crack up. It's, 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 just, it's just math. Um, um, and, and on the subject of this 2%, the Fed's mandate was stable prices, Jesse. That was, that's the mandate, stable prices. They concocted this 2% inflation bullshit because they are so stupid that they think inflation leads to economic growth. It does not. Inflation can be a consequence of economic growth. And often it is when it has been in the past when they've done things wrong. But you could have a brilliant economic recovery and have deflation if, if you had enough, you know, gee whiz tech stuff going on. So they're so wrongheaded about that. In any case, I got ahead of myself, but they're going to lose the bond market at some point, And then there's going to be hell to pay. I don't I just don't know when that is. No, And that's a great point. I, mean, I think we've seen, you know, deflationary periods throughout U.S. history, and they've not been, you know, detrimental to the economy. You're, yeah, I, I was, I was hoping you'd bring that up. That stable prices doesn't mean two; it means, it means zero. Uh, but I, you know, to, to come back to this losing the bond market point, this is something I absolutely agree with you. I think it's a, a you know, uh, it's inevitable. Um, but I guess the question is, what does that look like? What does it look like when the Fed begins to lose the bond market? 
I don't know, but I can say what the consequences are. So, yeah. so I, 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 let's let's I'll sketch it out for you. I'm making this up, but it's plausible. So let's say we're we're down the road uh, later in the year, and you know we've we've got the economy reopened. It's kind of sputtered. There's more cases, but we can see that it's manageable. We're going to get on the other side of the pandemic, and and man, now there's broken supply chains and all this kind of stuff, and we're moving stuff uh, things out of China, and the inflation rate starts to pick up, and maybe the bond market starts to back up. And let's say because the economy is still weak enough, because we've just gone from depression to severe recession, uh, the bond market's not doing what the Fed wants. The Fed decides, you know what? We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna exert yield curve control. So we're gonna peg. You know, everything out to 20 years at, you know, the 10 years is going to be 60 basis points. And we're going to we're going to peg the curve along various spots. Basically, what they'd be saying is the bond market doesn't really like the price it's at for whatever reasons, you know, too much stimulus, more inflation. But the Fed says, but we don't want the bond market to to, have, to, to, to raise rates on us, so we're going to suppress it. So they would be actually pouring gasoline on a lit fire. Basically, the bond market would be objecting to what they've done as being too stimulative, too provocative for inflation, however you want to say it. But they would then try to put to, to, to stop that revolt with the very thing that, that was causing the revolt, i.e. too much easy money. That would exacerbate that problem. It would enhance the inflation rate. It would it probably exacerbate inflation psychology. Now, all of a sudden, they can't print money anymore because printing money is having the opposite effect. Now, it's hard for people to get their heads around that because of what they've seen in the last 20 or 25 years, but that could easily happen. Then all of a sudden, when you can't print money to get out of the problem, then you could have a real depression. Then you'd have to deal with all the unfunded liabilities and all that stuff. But of course, now you've let them get worse over 20 years while you kicked the can when we could have done this after the first bubble burst or the second bubble burst in 08. So that's what it would look like. But then the other side of it is we have to see if, I mean, it, it, it could be that Japan tries the debt jubilee. And, and how does that play out? And I don't really know because, and, and we could try that, try that here. So I don't, I, I don't know. I can describe how they could lose the bond market. I could see how it's plausible. I could see inflation psychology having changed after people have been through this pandemic they start to think about what could go wrong and higher prices and they can see prices going up and they're more sensitive to it than they were before because they're all on tighter budgets because they were all you know people lost so much money by not working so that's how it could happen and you know it could it could happen this year for that matter i don't know that it will but that's how it could play out yeah well let me ask you this how likely do you think it is that or was that um, you know the the troubles that we've seen in repo over the last six months, um, seven eight months, could that be those early warning signs oh, of the Fed losing the bond market? Absolutely, Jesse. Thank you for bringing that up. I forgot there's been so much crap that's gone on that I've, I've, I've I kind of lost the thread. Yes, basically. That, in my opinion, was the early stage of it, because basically what happened was the budget deficit got so big that the primary dealers couldn't finance it with the with with the rules that came out of uh, um, uh, Graham Dodd. No, am I quoting the right bill or am I am I am I a bubble back? 
uh, no, Dodd Frank, Dodd Frank. Yeah, no, you, you're close. Yeah. yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. I was thinking of Grandma Dodd. <laughs> <laughs> the farthest thing possible from what's going on. Um, time, time to switch to wine. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, uh, so no, I, I, that was the early indication. And so what I thought was happening was the Fed was was you know they had to get in and monetize you know create a repo facility basically to allow the deficit to be funded, and just about about the time people were starting to talk about that, and it might have actually mattered to how people perceived what the Fed was doing, then the, all hell broke loose from the pandemic. But you're right. You know, every, no one's eye is on that ball anymore. But I think that was potentially the start of that. And, of course, now there's so much going on that people aren't really focusing on it. But, but yes, the, 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 there was too much – sorry – the demand for money at the prevailing price was too high, such that the dealers had to finance it, and and, and they they could because of the the short end of the curve. But no one had the balance sheet for it. If there had been enough going away buyers, said differently, if the market liked that rate and was willing to accept it, the Fed wouldn't have had to do what it did. So the the Fed Fed basically was forced to step in um, because the bond market was backing up due to too much supply at the wrong rate. The, the one yeah, thing we're so, Yeah, and so I, I, for me, I just it reminds me. It was a, a couple months after you know you and I sat down to talk about this stuff. I was fortunate enough to have uh, William White come on and, and ask him some of these questions. You know, and, and he pointed out, you know, kind of in terms of this, you know, the, the monetary policy can go so far before, you know, they potentially lose the bond market or something like this. But his point was monetary policy can kind of in a vacuum do whatever it wants without creating inflation, whatnot. It's when uh, fiscal policy starts to become out of control that you start seeing fiscal dominance and the Fed is basically put in a box. And I think, you know, to me, it seems like that's potentially what we're seeing, which, you know, it was it took a trillion dollar deficits again during an economic expansion to start blowing out the repo market. Uh, And now we're going from a trillion dollar deficit to who knows what we're going to be today. You know, people are talking 16, 18 percent of GDP or more. Uh, you know, kind of in, in the Fed being forced to monetize that, uh, we're kind of in uncharted territory here for, you know, at least U.S. Well, the, I think the biggest variable is psychology. If yeah. people perceive it to be OK, then it's kind of OK. If they start to worry about the consequence, that's uh, and I think that, you know, people look. I hear people say, well, QE didn't cause inflation because it stayed in the stock market. Well, you know what? That inflation, they created the excess money and it went into stocks and art and other. It went places. It didn't go so much into daily life. But that's a kind of a that that's a function of where the money went first. And people's psychology was they weren't too upset about it. Right. So if psychology's changed and people look at it differently, the, the psychology is what changes the, the M's, not the M's change psychology, if you know what I mean. Well, and you wrote recently, um, you feel like psychology or uh, that we're an inflection point with inflation psychology. Um, yeah. It, it, I mean, that's, yeah, expand on that a little bit. Well, again, there was more than 2%. Let's go back to last fall before. Let's, let's go back pre-virus. There was more than 2% inflation. Well, we don't know what the real number is because the cost of living is such a, a badly calculated index. 
what with the um, the, the dramatic effect that hedonics has, and since technology products are such a big deal in everyone's life, and their and and, produ- and and those productivity gains have been so huge, but but hedonics has held down held down the price in the CPI of lots and lots of different things. And then you've got substitution and you've got the way they calculate uh, house prices and things like that. So the CPI has been constructed so that it's very difficult to show any inflation. Um, but so it, it never showed much. And, but I, I think that anyone that, that has to pay bills knows that net net inflation was running over 2%, almost like the poorer you were, the higher it was and the wealthier you were, the lower it was. Um, so, Inflation was already well past where people should have objected to what the Fed was doing, but nobody seemed too concerned, I guess, because maybe because the economy was kind of percolating along and the stock market was strong. But it was one of the reasons I believe one of the reasons the middle class has been so eviscerated is because a lot of them don't get the real benefit of the stock market, maybe to some degree in a 401k. But they, they pay the price of the increase in health care and tuition and services and all these other things that don't get picked up very well in the CPI. So in, inflation has already been running too hot. And then when you come into the virus and then all people have a lot of time to spend at home, they're thinking about their money and they start thinking about things differently and they have to panic and hoard toilet paper and other things. It changes your, your mentality and you start to look at things differently and you say, well, you know, what's going to be the next spot shortage? Could it be pork? Could it be beef? Could it be chicken? You know, we, we read about these giant, you know, we've created these giant supply chains and everyone's lived on just in time manufacturing. In, case, in the old days, people used to have just in case something went wrong, right? And then all switched over to just in time because nothing ever went wrong. Well, now things have gone wrong and people's psychology can start to change about that. And they look at things differently. And then they're not so comfortable with the same policies that they were comfortable with before. So I can see that's maybe starting to happen. And I can certainly see why it could pick up some steam. And if it does, then the Fed has got a real problem. That's how they wind up losing the bond market. Yeah, you know, it's it, a couple great points there. One is, you know, that inflation is is probably not two percent. It, it's so, you know, it's such a bastardized calculation of inflation. There's a couple interesting sites. I, I think if you just Google shadow stats, you'll see. Yeah. If you calculate inflation the way that it was calculated in 1990, you know, we're running at five six percent inflation. We have been for the last ten years. So. Uh, uh, but then, you know, your other point to um, inflation psychology is so important because it seems like inflationary episodes are driven as much by inflationary psychology as much as anything else. You know, Absolutely. The- Listen, I will, I will, I will t- let's think about, let, let's go back to 79 to 84 just because I lived through it. So in 79 on Saturday in October, Volcker raised interest rates 200 basis points overnight and he was trying he was trying to convince the bond market and the world that he was serious about inflation so here's how much the world believed him the price of gold basically doubled between october of 79 and january of 80 they didn't believe him so then you know we went through 80 and 81 and and the rates were i think the 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 high end on on treasuries was around 16 
And then finally, uh, in, you know, in 81, people's the psychology started to change and the market started recovering in 82. But by 84, the economy had been doing well and the bond market, the rates backed up to 14% in 1984 because people were so certain that raging inflation was going to come back. It wasn't even close. But that's how that's what the mindset was. And that's how that's how powerful it can be. So the mindset has been, you know, just as powerful in the other direction that it can't possibly happen. I mean, no matter what happens, you see people forecasting deflation, right? I mean, I saw an intelligent person who should go nameless recently making the case that inflation was deflationary because it robbed people of purchasing power. (laughs) Well, you know, it's, it's, go ahead. No, that, that's, that's how dug in this deflation. I mean, I hear people yapping about deflation all the time. It hasn't happened. That's why they run the printing press. And, uh, yeah, you can have collapse in asset prices, real estate. I mean, we've just had a big collapse in the price of oil, right? But that's not going to take down anyone's tuition. That's not going to help healthcare. Do you think healthcare is going to be more expensive or less expensive after the coronavirus incident and what's happened to these hospitals? So the price of most everything is going to go up and people are focused on deflation because the price of oil collapsed? I mean – you know, so anyway, uh, well, I, lo- I love the, uh, the the to look at this as the inverse of that period you were talking about, you know, where Volcker was raising rates and nobody believed that inflation was going to come under control and that he was going to be able to tame it. Nobody believes, you know, the Fed is now saying we're going to do it's the exact opposite. Right. We're going to do everything we can to 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 spur inflation and stoke inflation. And nobody believes them. Right. It's and, exactly, and, it's oh, exact inverse. And oh, by the way. What do you think's harder to do, to stop it or to start it? Right, right. You know, That's a great point. stopping it requires draconian interest rates and credit constriction. Promoting it is party time, free drinks for everybody. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, I got to ask you, you know, I, I want to kind of bring this back to the stock market again. You were talking about the FANG stocks a little bit, but, you know, you've talked this as, about this as, at some point, the bond market's going to take the printing press away from the Fed. I've looked at it as, you know, the Fed is going to have to make a choice between the devil and the deep blue sea. Mm-hmm. The devil is the devil you know. That's that's an asset price bust. We've seen that twice in the last 25 years. And they either you're going to have to just allow that to happen uh, or they're going to, you know, try and save the market. And in the process, we're going to get we're going to see the deep blue sea, which is inflation just takes off beyond their control. Um, you know, and I th- I've seen that as kind of a just a dichotomous choice they're going to have to make. But now I'm, I'm at the point where I think they might get both. They might get an asset price bust and inflation taking off at the same time. I mean, where do, where do you kind of stand in that in that realm? Well, if they lose control of the bond market, they will get an asset price bust. Because if you can no longer monetize your way through problems because people are worried about the consequence of monetization, then you can't print. That means you have to deal with problems. That means you're going to have a horrific recession and brutal while you wring out the excesses and figure out how you're going to pay for all the debts that we've run up and the long-tailed liabilities that people will be focused on. So, um, you know... Them, them. The, if the Fed didn't have the ability, well, just look at right now. 
the Fed couldn't print or didn't print if they didn't come with the repo facility and the two trillion they've just come with. There's no way the government would have had the the idea that it could just come up with a two trillion dollar package and another two trillion dollar package at the drop of a hat. It's the 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 belief in what they're capable of doing has caused us to believe that that money printing can solve everything. Everything. Whereas it can't. And, you know, it's we're going to come out. Who, who, I don't know how much worse the, the finances of the government are going to be at the end of this year when we do all the things that they're going to wind up doing. But it's going to be pretty horrendous. Um, and, um, and uh, you know, I, I it's impossible to speculate, you know, how bad things could, could get if they weren't able to do this. But I'm just I just wanted to share the psychology is if they lose if they lose the psychology and the confidence of people in the bond market, they're, I mean, we're in for a world of hurt because I showed you they didn't believe Volcker after he'd done the right thing. He'd done all the right things. And in 84, they still didn't believe him. And you could, you could, the rates backed up to 14%. Inflation was running like four, five at the most, right? So you the thousand basis points of real return. People didn't want them because they were so convinced, you know, that changed. He, but that's that's what can happen if people lose confidence in him. I mean, it, it's it's really you can just let your imagination run wild as to how bad it could be. Yeah, yeah, and I guess you know my question is, you know, to go back to that earlier period, it feels to me like we could be facing another kind of stagflationary environment where we have a, a painful recession, but it's not necessarily, you know, I mean, it could be disinflationary in the short run with the oil price crash and, and a dramatic drop in just demand from forcing people to stay home and not work. But it seems to me that, you know, the, the this is going to linger even once we reopen the economy and all this kind of stuff, that it, it could be uh, a stagflationary type of environment for, for a period of time, which would force people to lose confidence in the Fed's ability, you know, in terms of not just the bond market, but also the stock market. You know, you lose yeah. confidence in that Fed I think that's a, I think time. that's the highest probability outcome, Jesse, is stagflation. Okay. So, in terms of the stock market, then, um, you know, last time we talked, uh, as as a short seller who's somebody's, you know, very nimble and tactical, you know, uh, and patient <laughs> in that regard, because you have to be with what's going on. Um, are you looking for that opportunity to, you know, shoot them in the back, as you like to say? Well, the the amount of monetization has kind of taken, you know, that that that. I mean, this rally, when it rolls over, would be the classic shoot them in the back opportunity. Um, but you know, um, again, I don't really know how to read the tape and what to expect with the massive amount of stimulus that that they're that they're applying and other central banks are applying. So I have, you know, I've been, I've been, I've been running my short strategy, so to speak, by being long gold and gold miners, because I felt that, and I imagine we probably talked about this a few years ago, although maybe I hadn't gotten that committed to it by yet then. Uh, I've just felt that because they're, they're always going to err on printing too much money until the bond market takes away the printing press that I, the, the things that make me want to be short, I can I can express 
my views on that by owning gold or in this case also gold miners because of the valuations there and the prospects for their businesses. So I've sort of, uh, I've, I've sort of not tried to, to be short because it's been so difficult and rather belong gold and, and, and gold miners. And, and that's actually been uh, a better way to do it um, than trying to be short. Now I know, there are a lot of smart guys that made money in being short retail and maybe the oil patch and all that. But if you, but again, I just, you know, and I look at the destruction of those stocks and think, wow, I could have been in them, but I've always kind of been involved in tech stocks, mostly on the short side. And, um, that really hasn't, that really still hasn't worked. I haven't really tried because it hasn't worked. Uh, so I just, I just think for, until they, until the bond market really, decides it doesn't trust the fed i think you can make you'll make more money being long gold and or and and gold stocks than you will being short generically not you know specifically i'm sure that some guys have made tons in certain areas like i've noted um but i just think it's it's just easier it'll be easier to do it this way well that's a fascinating answer because we we started out the conversation with that drug quote and you said well he didn't make his money shorting stocks he made it through bonds and fx and you know sometimes the the uh you know the the highest probability trade is is not just shorting the stock market there's a better way to express it and that that's what i hear you saying with gold is, is there's a better way to express this trade about the central bank mistake and that's just through being long gold right gold and i think silver at some point will really catch a bid and and the thing of it is is that i mean the gold stocks were have been so i mean they had a period in the first run of gold when it went from two you know 275 to 1800 you know a lot of them expanded uh somewhat carelessly and so they really got you know pummeled in the in the in the gold bear market when it traded from you know 1800 to 1100 or wherever the hell it went and now they have people have been sort of nervous about taking an interest in them when a lot of the guys a lot of the guys I mean, sorry, a lot of the companies have been really well, well run and, 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 and cleaned up. And so, I mean, it, you know, there have been various times I've looked at and said, well, I can make 50 or a hundred percent in these miners without anything really spectacular happening. Uh, it's going to be easier than being short. Now it hasn't been all that easy, but being short hasn't been all that easy, save for this last little break or big break we had, but then there's been a hell of a lot of motion around that as well. Well, it's funny. It is a big break, but it feels like a little break compared to the huge bull run that we've seen in the last 10 years. Is there anything, any type of uh, um, action, you know, that you would um, in, in the stock market that would get you excited about the short side? I'm sorry. Can you say that again? I'm not a friend. Yeah, no, I mean, is there any is there any type of like action uh, in in the broad market or in those tech stocks that would get you excited about the short side? Well, again? I mean, I mean, if you if you look at the if you look at the S and P, for instance, I mean, it, 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 you know, if it were to roll over around here somewhere, it would look it, it could look like a failing rally. I'd be, you know, I'd be tempted, like I'm kind of paying attention and I'll, if that starts to happen, I will, I will probably take some action, but, uh, I don't know how aggressive I'll be because, you know, the market starts down five or 6% and the fed rolls out another trillion. And the next thing you know, the, this things limit up again. Right. So, I mean, there's some stuff, I mean, like, 
I mean, the first stock I would probably pick on is Apple because, I mean, it's hardly been dented after the huge run. And you got a, what is it, a, a trillion dollar plus valuation. And, and uh, you know, I don't know what the estimate is right now because you know, the estimates are all, all no good. But I mean, it's it's probably. Let me just look here. I was going to see what it's what it's. Can't remember what its trailing earnings are. Let me just give me one sec. Um, um, just one sec. It's, I, I looked up its price yeah. to sales ratio. It's trading at its highest valuation in yeah, ten years you know, right so, now. Yeah, the price is yeah. So it's it's twenty sometimes earnings, and people could say, well, the market's you know, but look, you're paying twenty times earnings for a trillion dollar company that didn't really have much growth. And, and now you've got the world's decimated from an economic standpoint, nobody's going to race out to buy a new phone. So I don't know what the right multiples should be. I don't know what the right earnings estimate should be, but I just know that it hasn't really in, by my eye really been, been dented much by this decline. I mean, okay, it's what a decline from, you know, 320 to 260, but, but it's right where it was in December. It's still where it was in December. Does the world look anything like it did in December? So, I mean, I, and, and like Tesla, Tesla's a cult stock. It's a, it's a complete joke, but the thing levitates. I could go through, I could find lots and lots of these kind of things. If those things started to take on water and it kind of looked to me like, oh, they're finally getting to these things. They're going to have to price them like businesses instead of, instead of, instead of, you know, cult, you know, t- talismans, then I would, I, then I would find a bunch of stuff to do, but, but, you know, is that going to happen? I don't really know. And it, it would need to set up, it needs to set up in a way technically and from a fundamental standpoint where I would feel really comfortable because it's so dangerous. You can't really develop a thesis about how these things are going to play out because the fed gets in the way. And, when they print money, then people believe in fantasies. You know, last year was going to be a second half recovery for a whole group of things that never really happened. It was going to be this year, but now it's not going to happen because of the virus. And some of those companies that were going to get the second half rebound didn't get penalized. And then, of course, you got in the chip sector, you've got, you know, all you got some hoarding going on in China because they're worried about the ramifications of of what Trump may do post, you know, this moment in time we're in because in retaliation for what they, you know, for not getting on the virus. So then you've got these, there's so many weird signals coming out of say this, the, the chip supply chain. It's hard to get a real bead on what people are thinking so you can figure out how you can take advantage of that. So I just find, you know, it just, it just, the, the degree of difficulty factor is so extraordinarily high that I really need a, a, a really juicy setup which I can't really define to you in advance until I see it. Some combination of technicals and fundamentals that make it look like now the thing's going to go down and then we'll maybe flush the low from March and then you could get a real waterfall. But they're going to step in and try to arrest that. So you're going to have to be nimble. You can't really invest on the short side right now, in my opinion. You just have to trade it. Yeah, Yeah, well, I I like your point of of watching the speculative favorites because we saw – 
an incredible euphoric blow off in, you know, I mean, it was like 50% more call buying than we've ever seen in history. And a lot of it focused in Tesla and Virgin Galactic and these kinds of things. And, and they're still catching a bid, you know? And so for when you start to see those things roll over and that speculative euphoria start to, you know, really take a dent that, that might be this, the signal. So I, I, I like that. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm kind of looking for. But the, even there, I don't know how ex- – you see, the problem is to really make money on the short side, you've got to be willing to have some serious exposure. You know, when I was running my short book, I mean, when I got, you know, excited, you know, I'd be, I'd be you know, 80 90% short and things started to work. I'd press it and take it 120 130 140 Briefly, if it started to work, I'd step on the gas because in short selling, it's about – your tactics, when do you press, when do you take them off, you know, when, and, and all that kind of thing. And geez, I can't, given what's going on, I can't imagine a scenario where I'd be comfortable being 40% short, much less 140. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, so then in the case of the average investor, then, you know, who's, who's, you know, maybe got some kind of mixture of stocks and bonds, probably no gold or very little, you know, what, how do you, you know, how would you suggest they kind of look at this environment? Well, I mean, I think anybody that doesn't have a decent allocation to gold and or silver is doesn't understand the situation. Um, and of course, what's decent? I mean, to everyone's everyone's got to decide what's right for them. But I mean, if you're going to own bonds that, you know, you know, handfuls of basis points you have to have some gold to protect yourself you've got to have some sort of protection against the recognition that these policies lead to trouble so i mean i i can't tell people what they should do historically people used to it used to be considered normal to have a five or ten percent allocation of gold that was considered normal now that'd be you know that that that'd be a huge i myself have you know, a great deal more than that, but I'm comfortable with that. And it's, you know, these are things that people have to decide for themselves. And the only way you can start to see how you feel about it, you've got to, you've got to, you've got to allocate a little to the sector, see how you feel with it. You know, whether you buy one of the gold ETFs or a gold mining stock or better yet buy physical. Um, And then you see how you feel and how does it make you feel? And how does it, how do you look at your stocks and bonds knowing you have that? And, And that's the only way you can really get your head around what you need to do is you've got to you've got to take a little action i'll give you a different example there's been millions i mean there's been lots of moments in time where like i was short a bunch and i was wrong you know i I pressed them and the only way you can figure out where you need to get is you got to start taking them off right i got to start getting smaller or um kind of i mean i have rarely been asleep at the switch when the market's buckled and i felt like i had to get bigger but again same same thing you 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 got to add 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 your exposure and see how it makes you feel. So I think, I think anybody that was a friend of mine who I cared about and I sat down to talk to, I, I don't like to tell them what to do, but I'd say, listen, you have to think about having some, some gold or gold mining stocks to protect yourself from what's going on. And I would explain why. And then, and then, and then, so that's what I would say to any of your listeners. It, it's just, it's, I mean, I don't want to sound radical, but it's almost foolhardy given what they're doing, what they're going to do to not have some exposure to precious metals. And, and you could look at it like, okay, I'll have a 5% allocation and I hope that it doesn't work because that'll mean the 95% works. I look at it differently. I'm going to have a much bigger 
exposure because I think it's going to work, but it all depends on your perspective. But to not have any or to not think about having any, I think is, uh, is dangerous. Yeah. It's, you know, it's like not, you know, I'm not going to buy homeowners insurance or what have you. I mean, I'll I'll be more blunt. I think if you have no gold in your portfolio right now, you're crazy. Um, Well, it's your podcast. You can say that. That's right. Yeah. Well, uh, Bill, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I, I, I really am uh, grateful to you for spending so much time, you know, just going through and sharing your, your views with all this stuff. It's super valuable. Where where can people kind of keep up with you and your ideas? Well, um, the uh, I, I, I've in the last group of years, I've taken to, you know, tweeting now and again. And so I have a I'm on Twitter at Fleckcap. But um, if people wanted to read my, I, I write a column every day and I answer questions and that's at fleckensteincapital.com. It is a pay site because I don't want trolls, but I priced it cheaply. It's $120 a year if anyone cares. And uh, if they want to learn more, they, they can go there. Well, I, I think I've been reading you for 20 years now, and I highly recommend it. I can't believe it's been so long that I've been reading your stuff. So clearly you've infected my, my whole uh, process. I can't believe that I've been writing a column for like almost 24, 23 and a half years now. So I can't believe it's been that long. You were there. Well, it's, been a great, it's, it's been a great service to me, and I know it's been a great service to tons of other investors out there. So thank you so much for doing that. And uh and thanks again for taking the time to do this. We'll have to – hopefully we can do it again. We won't wait three years. Yeah, and we can do it to, We can do it together. We can break all the rules and sit across the table from each other. <laughs> there you go. It's a deal. I'll bring the wine again. Okay. <laughs> And that does it for another episode of Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. As always, you can find notes and links related to this episode at thefelderreport.com. Thank you for listening, and until next time, buy low, sell high. Man looks in the abyss. There's nothing staring back at him. At that moment, man finds his character. And that is what keeps him out of the abyss.